What is up my dudes? Welcome back to yet another episode of Olympia Oddities. I hope everyone had a fun and safe new year, and that your year is off to a good start. I spent most of December working on this episode for you guys, and I cannot wait to get into this topic. This will be a two-parter, so let's get into part one. Today, I'm going to be telling you the story of a man who decided to leave his life behind, abandon his car, and burn all the cash in his wallet before walking out into the Alaskan wilderness. Let's get into the story of the infamous Christopher McCandless. Christopher Johnson McCandless was born on February 12, 1968, in El Segundo, California, to a wealthy family. His parents were Walt and Billy McCandless. He was their oldest child, and eventually his younger sister Corinne was born. As kids, Chris and Corinne had a close-knit bond with each other. He also had six half-siblings from his father's first marriage, but these half-siblings lived with their mother in California before moving to Denver, Colorado. Walt had worked as an aerospace engineer who designed the radar systems for the space shuttle and had been employed by NASA and Hughes Aircraft in the 60s and 70s. In 1976, the family moved to Annandale, Virginia, a wealthy suburb of Washington, D.C. In 1978, he created his own business with Billy as his business partner, The business, a consulting firm called User Systems Incorporated, allowed both of them to work from home. In Corinne's book, The Wild Truth, which was published in 2014, she described a toxic family life at home. She claimed that Walt was an alcoholic, and this fueled verbal, physical, and sexual abuse of each other and towards their children. In a statement that was released shortly after the book was, Walt and Billy denied their daughter's accusations, saying that it was, quote, fictionalized writing that had nothing to do with our beloved son Chris, his journey, or his character. Chris had done well in high school, both in his studies and in sports. He graduated from W.T. Woodson High School in 1986. He'd been the captain of the track team and urged his teammates to follow his oddly spiritual take on running, telling them that they were, quote, running against the forces of darkness, all the evil in the world, all the hatred. After his high school graduation, he decided to take a trip that summer to visit friends and some distant relatives of his. During this trip, he learned that his father had still been married to his previous wife when he and Corinne had been born, and had been keeping up a double life until the move to Virginia. His half-brother Quinn had been born just three months after Corinne. In my main source for this episode, John Krakauer's Into the Wild, He thought that the overlap between Walt's two marriages affected Chris in a deeply negative way and helped form the eventual worldview that he would come to have. His sister Corinne would confirm that the overlap did affect Chris deeply in her own book, The Wild Truth. Chris attended Emory University in Atlanta. At Emory, he worked as a columnist and editor for the college's newspaper, The Emory Wheel. He was offered membership into Phi Beta Kappa, but declined. He thought that titles and honors were irrelevant. He was a fan of classic novelists, particularly Leo Tolstoy, and began emulating his behavior in college to a degree that alarmed the people who knew him. He graduated from Emory University in May of 1990, getting a bachelor's degree with a double major of history and anthropology. The last two years of his college experience had been paid for as a gift by a family friend, and at the time of his graduation, $24,000 remained. His parents assumed that he was going to use this money to go to law school, but instead, he donated the remaining $24,000 to Oxfam America, a charity dedicated to fighting world hunger. 
During the weekend celebrations of his college graduation, he had mentioned that he wanted to spend the summer on the road, traveling around America. His exact words had been, I think I'm going to disappear for a while, but no one, not even his parents, paid much attention to his claim. Chris was still living in Atlanta in the meantime, and in June he mailed his parents a copy of his final grade report. He attached a brief note that read, Here's a copy of my final transcript. Grade-wise, things went pretty well, and I ended up with a high cumulative average. Thank you for the pictures, the shaving gear, and the postcard from Paris. It seems you really enjoyed your trip there. It must have been a lot of fun. I gave Lloyd his picture. He was very grateful. He did not have a shot of his diploma getting handled to him. Nothing else is happening, but it's starting to get really hot and humid down here. Say hi to everyone for me. That would be the last time that Christopher McCandless's family would ever hear from him. After they hadn't heard anything else from Chris after receiving his grade report, they decided to drive down to Atlanta to see him in person in August. However, when his parents arrived at his apartment, a for-rent sign was in the window, and it appeared empty. They spoke with the apartment manager, and he told them that Chris had moved out in June. When they returned home from their shocking discovery in Atlanta, they found that all of the letters that they had sent Chris that summer had been returned in a bundle. They later found out that Chris had instructed the post, the post office to hold them until the 1st of August before sending them, apparently so they wouldn't know anything was up with him. This deeply worried both of his parents. Five weeks earlier, Chris had loaded all of his belongings into his car and headed west. Once on the road, he decided it was time for a name change and settled on Alexander Supertramp. In October of 1990, his car was found abandoned by a team of Park Service Rangers. Ranger Bud Walsh had been sent into the backcountry of Lake Mead with a team of a few other rangers to count the bear paw poppies in the area. They'd been walking down a dry riverbed when one of the rangers happened to look down while he was catching his breath and spotted a brown tarp covering a large object. When they pulled the tarp off, they discovered a yellow Datsun that was missing its license plates. The doors to the car had been left unlocked, and the floorboards were covered in mud, apparently from a recent flash flood. A note on the windshield read, This piece of shit has been abandoned. Whoever can get it out of here can have it. Looking inside, they found a guitar, a garbage bag full of old clothes, 493 in loose change kept in a saucepan, a fishing rod, tackle, an electric razor, a harmonica, jumper cables, and 25 pounds of rice. They also found the keys to the car, which had been tucked in the glove compartment. They searched the area around the car for signs of anything suspicious, but after finding nothing, they continued on with their botanical survey. Five days later, another ranger returned to the vehicle and was able to jumpstart it without any issues. He drove it back to the National Park Service Yard at Temple Bar, with Ranger Walsh describing the scene as, He drove it back at 60 miles an hour, said the thing ran like a champ. In an attempt to track down the owner of the car, they put out a bulletin to law enforcement agencies and ran a search of the car's VIN number across the southwest, trying to see if it had been used in any crimes. Nothing turned up from either of these efforts. Eventually, though, they were able to trace the serial number to the Hertz Corporation. They'd been the original owners of the car and explained that they had sold it years ago as a used rental car. They had no interest in getting the car back, so it became a park service vehicle, being used in drug sting operations. What the rangers hadn't known was that it was Alexander Supertramp who had abandoned the car shortly after arriving at Lake Mead on July 6th. He had steered off the pavement and driven about two miles down the dry riverbed before stopping. He stopped near the south shore of the lake and set up his camp in the 120 degree heat of that day. Just two days after his arrival, rain started pouring down heavily and a flash flood came rushing down the previously dry riverbed. 
He had just enough time to grab his tent and most of his belongings and get to safety. The flood wasn't strong enough to carry his car away or to cause much significant damage to it, but it was enough to get the engine wet. He tried the keys and the ignition, but the car wouldn't start. In his frustration, he tried again and again until the car's battery had died. He then realized to get the car out of the riverbed, he was probably going to need to talk to the park rangers, and they were probably going to have some questions for him. He ignored the signs that warned not to drive into the riverbed because of flood dangers, his driver's license was expired, and the car's registration had expired over two years ago. He decided that his best option was to just ditch the car and to continue his journey on foot. He saw the flood as a chance to relieve himself of the unnecessary material items he'd been carrying. He used a tarp to cover the car the best he could and stripped the license plates off, burying them in the sand. He also buried a Winchester rifle along with a few other possessions that he thought he might want to come back for someday. Then he took all the money he had on him, $123 in ones, fives, and twenties, and stacked them in a pile. He struck a match and lit the rest of the money to his name on fire. After arranging the last few items he still had in his backpack, he headed off on a hike around Lake Mead on July 10th. This hike would turn out to be the first of many mistakes Alex would make along his journey. In his journal, which is obnoxiously written in the third person, he wrote, Tremendous mistake. In extreme July temperatures becomes delirious. He managed to wave down some boaters who helped him by giving him a ride to Colville Bay, a marina at the west end of the lake. Here he headed for the side of the road and stuck out his thumb, hoping for a ride. He was able to successfully hitchhike around the west for the next two months, going to Lake Tahoe, hiking into the Sierra Nevada, and even spending a week walking north on the Pacific Crest Trail. Leaving the mountains, he headed back to the road in search of another ride. At the end of July, he was picked up by a man known as Crazy Ernie. Crazy Ernie offered him a job and told him that he would be working on a ranch in Northern California. After arriving at the ranch and working for 11 days without any sign of pay, Alex realized that Ernie had no intention of paying any of the drifters he had working for him and stole a bike from the yard. He rode it into Chico and ditched the bike in a mall parking lot. He hitchhiked north and then west from here, traveling through Red Bluff, Weaverville, and Weaverville and Willow Creek. On August 10th, he was cited for hitchhiking in Willow Creek and gave the arresting officers his parents' address after they pressed him for a permanent residence of his. At the end of August, the hitchhiking ticket arrived in his parents' mailbox. They'd been worried before this, but this sent them into a panic. They knew that Chris was very attached to his car, and they were concerned at what had happened to it to cause him to be separated from it and traveling on foot. They had contacted the Annandale police, but they'd been no help in help attempting to locate their son. One of their neighbors was the director of U.S. of the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency, so Walt went to him for advice on their son's disappearance. The neighbor put Walt in touch with a private investigator named Peter Kalitka, who had previously worked with the FBI and the CIA. Kalitka began his search into locating McCandless's son, starting in Willow Creek. He would follow leads as far as Africa and Europe, but he was never quite able to catch up with Chris. Meanwhile, Alexander Supertramp had been spotted on the side of the road by a couple who pulled over to get a better look at their map. The couple, Jan Burris and Bob, were traveling around the West selling items at swap meets and flea markets. Jan described the event saying, He was wearing long shorts and this really stupid hat. He had a book about plants with him and he was using it to pick berries, collecting them in a gallon milk jug with the top cut off. He looked pretty pitiful, so I yelled, Hey, do you want to ride somewhere? I thought maybe we could give him a meal or something. 
He accepted their offer and introduced himself to the couple as Alex. Jan also said that he was, quote, big time hungry, 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 but real happy. Said he'd been surviving on edible plants he'd identified from the book, like he was real proud of it. Said he was tramping around the country having a big old adventure. He told us about abandoning his car, about burning all his money. I said, why would you want to do that? Claimed he didn't need money. I have a son about the same age Alex was, and we've been estranged for a few years now. So I said to Bob, man, we've got to take this kid with us. You need to school him on some things. Alex took a ride with us, or from us, up to Oric Beach, where we were staying, and camped with us for over for a week. He was a really good kid. When he left, we never expected to hear from him again, but he made a point of staying in touch. For the next two years, Alex sent us a postcard every month or two. After leaving, after leaving the swap meeting couple behind, Alex once again traveled north, moving through Oregon and Washington before arriving in Seattle. In December, private investigator Kalitka had been looking over some tax reports and made the discovery that Chris had given away the rest of his college fund to Oxfam. This discovery scared his parents even more, and they had absolutely no idea what their son could have been up to at this point. Chris headed east across the Cascade Range, moving into, or arriving in Montana, meeting a man who would become very important to him, Wayne Westerberg. They first met in the fall of 1990, when Wayne picked Alex up off the side of the highway. It had been the afternoon of September 10th, and Wayne was out picking up parts to fix his combine when he decided to pull over and let the hitchhiker in. Alex told Wayne that his name was Alex McCandless and ended up staying with him for three days. Before he left, Wayne made sure to tell him that if he ever needed a job, all he had to do was look him up in Carthage, South Dakota. Only a few weeks went by before Alex rolled into town and stopped at the grain elevator Wayne owned. Wayne gave him a job and a place to stay in a cheap room in another house he owned, where most of his employees stayed. In Wayne and the other employees, Alex formed a makeshift family, and he seemed to really enjoy being in Carthage. Wayne Westerberg described him as the hardest worker he'd ever seen, and that he could tell he was an intelligent man right away. He also said of Alex, He read a lot. He used a lot of big words. I think maybe part of what got him into trouble was that he did too much thinking. Sometimes he tried too hard to make sense of the world, to figure out why people were bad to each other so often. A couple of times I tried to tell him it was a mistake to get too deep into that kind of stuff, but Alex got stuck on things. He always had to know the absolute right answer before he could go on to the right thing, or the next thing. Eventually, Westerberg discovered Alex's real name was Chris. He'd found out because of a tax form, but never explained his reasoning for changing his name to, to him. Westerberg sensed that something was off in his relationship with his family, but never pushed him for more information on the matter. Alex spent his time in Carthage working hard at the grain elevator, taking turns cooking meals with the other employees, and going out drinking with them. Everything was going great until Wayne was arrested in an FBI sting. He'd gotten involved selling black boxes to illegally unscramble satellite TV transmissions, which allowed people to watch it without paying for it. On October 10, 1990, Westerberg was sentenced to four months in jail. Without Wayne, there was no work at the grain elevator, so it was once again time for Alex to hit the road. He left Carthage on October 23rd, leaving Westerberg his prized copy of Tolstoy's War and Peace before he left. Interestingly, from this point on, Alex told most people who asked that he was from South Dakota. He continued to call and write Wayne every month or two, and had all of his mail forwarded to Wayne's address. On October 28th, he caught a ride with a trucker who dropped him off in Needles, California. He walked into the desert, following along a riverbank, eventually arriving in Topic, Arizona, 12 miles later. While in town, he spotted a used aluminum canoe for sale and decided to buy it. 
he formed a plan to paddle down the Colorado River into the Gulf of California. This trip would be nearly 400 miles. He began his journey down the river, arriving in Yuma at the end of November. He stopped for supplies and sent a postcard to Wayne at the work release facility he was at. From there, he continued his journey, arriving in the Morelos Dam and the Mexican border on December 2nd. Alex was worried that he was going to be denied entry into Mexico because he didn't have any identification on him, so he decided that he was going to sneak in. He was able to successfully paddle into the country by sneaking through the dam's open floodgates. He wrote in his journal that, quote, Alex looks quickly around for signs of trouble, but his entry to Mexico is either unnoticed or ignored. Alexander is jubilant. The area right after the dam, though, was a maze created from irrigation uh, canals, marshland, and dead-end channels. He got lost repeatedly before coming across some canal officials who spoke some English. They explained to him that he'd not been traveling uh, to the south as he'd thought, but had been traveling westward. They asked him if he knew any way he could get into to the Gulf of California, and the officials talked amongst themselves, making marks on a map as they discussed the plan. After about 10 minutes, they provided him with a route to get to the ocean. He followed their instructions, but they led him to a dry dead end. After getting out to investigate, Alex realized that this was a section of the Colorado River that had dried up and discovered another canal about a half mile away on the other side of it. It took him three whole days, but he was finally able to get his canoe to the other canal. In his journal, he wrote that, 12-9, all hopes collapse. The canal does not reach the ocean, but merely peters out into vast swamp. Alex is utterly confounded, decides he must be close to swamp, and elects to try and work way through swamp to sweet. See, Alex becomes progressively lost to the point where he must push canoe through reeds and drag it through mud. All is in despair. Find some dry ground to camp in swamp at sundown. Next day, on 12-10, Alex resumes quest for an opening to the sea, but only becomes more confused, traveling in circles. Completely demoralized and frustrated, he lays in his canoe at day's end and weeps. But then by fantastic chance, he comes upon Mexican duck hunting guides who can speak English. He tells them his story and his quest for sea. They say there is no outlet to the sea, but then one among them agrees to tow Alex back to his base camp and drive him and the canoe to the ocean. It is a miracle. The duck hunters dropped him off at a small fishing village on the Gulf of California, and he traveled south by sea in his canoe. During this time, he took lots of pictures for his photo album, taking shots of a tarantula, sunsets, dunes, and the coastline. His journal entries got shorter during this time. Over the next month, he would write less than 100 words. On December 14th, he hauled his canoe out of the ocean and set up his camp on the edge of a plateau. He stayed at this camp for 10 days before high winds forced him to seek shelter in a cave. He stayed in the cave for another 10 days. On January 2nd, he decided it was time to return to the sea and headed off in his canoe to paddle down the shore. On the 11th, he peached his canoe on some dunes in order to observe the tides, but just an hour later, strong wind and waves nearly carried him out to sea. The journal entry for this reads, a very fateful day. In great frustration, he screams and beats canoe with oar. The oar breaks. Alex has one spare oar. He calms himself. If loses second oar, is dead. Finally, through extreme effort and much cursing, he manages to beach canoe on jetty and collapses exhausted onto sand at sundown. This incident led Alexander to decide to abandon canoe and return north. He left the canoe lying in the sand on the beach on the 16th and started walking north up the beach. 
He hadn't seen another human for 36 days during this adventure. He'd lived off a five-pound bag of rice and whatever edible things he could get from the ocean. On January 18th, he was back at the U.S. border. He tried to sneak in without his ID, but he was caught by immigration authorities and put into jail. After a night in jail, he was able to come up with a believable enough story to get him out of jail and back into the United States, and he was released. They did keep his 38 caliber handgun that they confiscated from him, though. He spent the next six weeks roaming around the southwestern states, traveling as far east as Houston and as far west as the Pacific coast. As a safety measure against being robbed, Alex had begun to bury his money on the outside of towns when he arrived and then would dig his money up on his way back out of town. A February 3rd journal entry says that he went to LA in an in attempt to get an ID and a job, but feels extremely uncomfortable in society now and must return to the road immediately. He camped out for a few days with a German couple he'd met and wrote, Can this be the same Alex that set out in July 1990? Malnutrition and the road have taken their toll on his body, over 25 pounds lost, but his spirit is soaring. He returned to the scene of his abandoned car on the 24th and found it long gone. He dug up the license plates and the belongings that he had left behind. From there, he hitchhiked into Las Vegas, where he found employment at an Italian restaurant. His journal from this time reads, Alexander buried his backpack in the desert on 227 and entered Las Vegas with no money and no ID. He lived on the street with bums, tramps, and winos for several weeks. Vegas would not be the end of the story, however. On May 10th, Itchy Feet returned and Alex left job in Vegas, retrieved his backpack, and hit the road again though he found that if you are stupid enough to bury a camera underground, you won't be taking many pictures with it afterwards. Thus, the story has no picture book for the period May 10th, 1991, January 7th, 1992. But that is not important. It is the experiences, the memories, the great triumphant joy of living, to the extent in which real meaning is found. God, it's great to be alive. Thank you. Thank you. He stopped writing in his journal around this time, and didn't pick it back up again until his arrival in Alaska next year. Not a great deal is known about his travels after leaving Las Vegas in May 1991. He wrote to Jan Burris, though, part of the hitchhiking couple he'd formed a bond with, and explained that he'd spent July and August on the Oregon coast, probably somewhere near Astoria. He complained that the fog and rain were intolerable, though, so he headed back into California and to the desert once again. In early October, he stopped in Bullhead City, Arizona. He stopped here for more than two months, which was probably the longest time that he'd stayed in one place since leaving Atlanta. He sent Wayne Westerberg a card from Arizona that read, It's a good place to spend the winter, and I might finally settle down and abandon my tramping life for good. I'll see what happens when spring comes around, because that's when I really tend to get really itchy feet. He'd gotten a job at the McDonald's in town, and was holding down full-time employment pretty successfully. When he applied for the job, he'd given them his legal name and his social security number, but his parents' hired private investigator never caught the slip-up. He'd even opened up a savings account at the bank in town. His bosses at McDonald's described him as a decent enough worker, but one of his assistant managers remembers a weird stance he took while working there. George Driesen said, One thing I do remember is that he had a thing about socks. He always wore shoes without socks, just plain couldn't stand to wear socks. But McDonald's has this rule that employees have to have appropriate footwear at all times. That means shoes and socks. Chris would comply with the rule, and then as soon as the shift was over, bang, the first thing he'd do is peel those socks off. I mean, the very first thing. Kind of like a statement, to let us know that we didn't own him, I guess. But he was a nice kid and a real good worker. Real dependable. Um, I'm just going to take a second here to say that 
I've been in that exact same argument with my manager when I worked at Jimmy John's. I'm an anti-sock person. I wear them if it's, like, really rainy and gross out. But I, I don't know. I'm with Chris on this one. I don't understand why I have to wear a sock. My foot's inside of my shoe. Why do I have to wear the sock? It's not like it's near your burger. I don't know. Anyways, sorry. Moving on. Another assistant manager, Lori Zarza, had a less glowing review of Alex. She said that, Frankly, I was surprised he ever got hired. He could do the job. He cooked in the back. But he always worked the same slow pace, even during the lunch rush, no matter how much you'd get on him to hurry it up. Customers would be stacked ten deep at the counter, and he wouldn't understand why I was on his case. He just didn't make the connection. It was like he was off in his own universe. She also described how she never saw him hang out with any of the other employees after work, and when he talked, it was usually rambling about trees or nature. Alex did eventually quit his McDonald's job, after Lori Zarza had to come to him and tell him that he needed to be more hygienic, especially smell-wise, if he was going to work at McDonald's. This caused a clash between the two that was widened when other employees began offering toiletries to Alex in an attempt to help him out. This irritated him even more, and three weeks after the confrontation, Alex quit and walked out. He tried to hide the fact that he was a drifter and homeless from his co-workers, he had told them that he was living across the river in Laughlin and would make excuses to decline rides whenever they'd offered. For his first several weeks in town, he'd been living in the desert at the edge of town, riding a bike into work every shift. He'd eventually resorted to squatting in a mobile home after receiving an offer to stay of a place to stay from an old man. He wrote of this incident in a letter to Jan Burris that read, One morning I was shaving in a restroom when an old man came in, observing me, and asked me if I was sleeping out. I told him yes, and it turned out he had this old trailer I could stay in for free. The only problem is he didn't really own it. Some absentee owners are merely letting him live on their land there, in another little trailer he stays in. So I kinda have to keep things toned down and stay out of sight, because he isn't supposed to have anybody over there. It is a really good deal though, for the inside of the trailer is nice. It's a house trailer, furnished, with some of the electric sockets working, and a lot of living space. The only drawback is this old guy, whose name is Charlie, is something of a lunatic, and it's rather difficult to get along with him sometimes. When Charlie was interviewed by Krakauer about Chris, he said that, Nice guy, yeah, pretty nice guy. Didn't like to be around too many people, though. Temperamental. He meant good, but I think he had a lot of complexes. Know what I'm saying? Liked to read books by that Alaska guy, Jack London. Never said much. He'd get moody, wouldn't like to be bothered. Seemed like a kid who was looking for something, looking for something, just didn't know what it was. I was like that once, but I realized what I was looking for. Money. But like I was saying, Alaska. Yeah, he talked about going to Alaska. Maybe to find whatever it was he was looking for. Nice guy. Seemed like one anyways. Had a lot of complexes sometimes, though. Had him bad. When he left, was around Christmas, I think. He gave me 50 bucks and a pack of cigarettes for letting him stay here. Thought that was mighty decent of him. Jan Burris received another letter from Alex in November and was slightly shocked to see that this one actually had a return address on it. She immediately wrote back to him, telling him that they would love to see him and that they weren't too far away from Bullhead City. Alex wrote back with another letter, including a hand-drawn map and instructions on how to get to his trailer. But before Jan and Bob could catch up to him, just four days later they found a big black backpack leaning against their van. They instantly recognized the pack as Alex's, and their dog Sonny sniffed him out before they were able to find them themselves. He told them that he'd grown tired of living a normal life with plastic people in Bullhead, and he decided to hit the road once again. Jan and Bob had been staying at a place called The Slabs, which was a military bunker that had been abandoned and taken over by drifters. 
Around November, around 5,000 snowbirds and drifters would come to the slabs and set up camp. Alex helped Jan with her stand at the slab swap meet. He helped watch the table when she needed to leave, categorized the books, and successfully made some sales. He seemed to really enjoy this work and urged nearly everyone he talked to to read Jack London's Call of the Wild. He'd been a huge fan of his work since he was a kid and seemed to forget that his books gave romanticized fictional accounts of the wilderness and ignored some of the harsh realities of it. Around this time, Alex began telling the residents of Slab City all about his plans to adventure in Alaska. He began doing exercises to get in shape every morning and discussed backcountry survival strategies with Bob. Bob told Krakauer that, quote, I thought Alex had lost his mind when he told us about his great Alaskan odyssey, as he called it, but he was really excited about it. Couldn't stop talking about the trip. The Burroughs asked if he had any family or friends that knew of his plans to go to Alaska, but he just rolled his eyes and told Jan to stop mothering him. They were all watching a football game together the Sunday before Alex was supposed to leave, when Jan and Bob noticed him cheering particularly hard for the, fo- for the football team from Washington, D.C. They asked him if he was from the D.C. area originally, and re- he replied, Yeah, I actually am. That was the only thing about his background that he ever told Jan and Bob about. He decided that it was time for him to leave on Wednesday, but first he needed to make a stop at the post office in Salton City, 50 miles away. He'd had his last check from McDonald's sent there. Jan drove him to the post office and offered him some money for the time that he'd spent helping her out at the swap meet, but Alex declined and acted offended at the gesture. She was finally able to convince him to take a few Swiss Army and belt knives along with him by telling him that they would come in handy in his Alaskan adventures, suggesting that he could trade them for other supplies down the road. After even more convincing, she was able to get him to accept a pair of long underwear and some other warm clothing. Jan said, he eventually took it to shut me up, but the day after he left, I found most of it in the van. He pulled it out of his pack when we weren't looking and hid it up under the seat. Alex was a great kid, but he could really make me mad sometimes. She also said that, I thought he'd be fine in the end. He was smart, he'd figured out how to paddle a canoe down to Mexico, how to hop freight trains, how to score a bed at inner city missions. He figured all that out on his own, and I felt he'd sure figure out Alaska too. After saying his goodbyes, he hiked into the desert and set up a tent at the edge of the Anza Borrego Desert State Park. When he needed supplies, he'd hitchhike or walk the four miles into town and stock up on water and rice. On a Thursday afternoon in mid-January, a kind old man named Ron Franz stopped to give him a ride. Alex told him that his camp was set out past Oh My God Hot Springs, and Ron told him that he'd been in the area for about six years but hadn't heard of any place called that. Alex showed him how to get there, and they arrived at an encampment of about 200 people out in the desert. A good number of people were walking around completely naked, and then they spotted how the camp had received its name. Water from a geothermal well had been pumped into two shallow pools, creating hot springs. Alex wasn't living directly by the springs, but a half mile away, and Ron drove him the rest of the way to the camp. They talked as they drove, and Ron returned to the town after dropping Alex off. Ron was a recovering alcoholic who had lost his only son, and he wasn't able to stop thinking about Alex. He decided that someone needed to talk him about the way he was living, and needed to encourage him to get an education and to get his life into shape. He drove back to Alex's camp and started going in on him, but Alex cut him off and explained that he had an education already, and he was living like this by choice. They talked some more and ended up driving into Palm Springs together. In Palm Springs, they shared a meal and then stopped to dig up some belongings that Alex had buried in that area a while ago. Over the next few weeks, the men spent a lot of time together. Alex told Ron his plans to go to Alaska, 
and used the opportunity to take his turn at lecturing, telling Ron that he needed to abandon his possessions and head out on the road himself. Ron worked as a leather worker, and during their time together, taught Alex some of his craft. His first project he made was a belt, with carvings that detailed his adventures around the West. Alex is inscribed at the left end, then his initials, CJM, frame a skull and crossbones. There's a carving of a two-lane blacktop, a no-U-turn sign, a thunderstorm making a flash flood that swallows a car, a hitchhiker's thumb, an eagle, the Sierra Nevada, a salmon in the Pacific Ocean, the PCH from Oregon to Washington, the Rocky Mountains, wheat fields, a rattlesnake, Westerberg's house, the Colorado River, a canoe beached besides a tent, Las Vegas, Astoria, and then finally, the letter N at the very end. In early February, Alex decided that it was time for him to head to San Diego in hopes of earning more money to go towards his Alaska trip. Ron offered him money, but Alex declined his offer, telling him that he was leaving on Monday. Ron offered a ride instead, since he had to pick up some leather supplies anyways. Alex accepted this offer. Ron explained that dropping Alex off was hard emotionally, saying it was a very hard thing for me to do. I was sad to be leaving him. On the 19th, he called Ron to wish him a happy 81st birthday and mentioned that he'd been having trouble finding work in California. On the 28th, he mailed a postcard to Jan that read, Hello, I've been living on the streets of San Diego for the past week. First day I got here, it rained like hell. The missions here suck and I'm getting preached to death. Not much happening in terms of jobs, so I'm heading north tomorrow. I've decided to head for Alaska no later than May 1st, but I've got to raise a little cash to outfit myself. May go back and work for a friend I have in South Dakota, if he can use me. Don't know where I'm headed now, but I'll write to you when I get there. Hope all's well with you. Take care. Alex. On March 5th, he sent another postcard to Jan, and a letter to Ron, explaining that he'd ridden a train up to Seattle. A week after receiving this letter, Ron's phone rang. It was Alex, asking if he could come pick him up. When Ron said yes and asked then where in Seattle Alex was, he laughed and explained that he was just up the road in California. He'd made it to Coachella by hopping trains after being unable to find work in the Pacific Northwest. He'd been discovered hiding away in Colton, California, and was briefly jailed. Once he was released, he'd hitchhiked to Coachella and made his call to Ron. Ron rushed to pick him up, and they went to a sizzler. After a meal of steak and lobster, they headed back to Salton City. Alex explained that he would only be in town for a day and wanted to wash his clothes and load up his backpack again. He'd heard from Wayne, and he'd had a job waiting for him at the grain elevator back in Carthage. Ron offered to drive Alex as far as Grand Junction, Colorado, the furthest he could go without missing an appointment he had the next day. Alex accepted his offer, and Ron dropped him off, giving him a machete, an arctic parka, a collapsible fishing pole, and a few other items of gear that he thought would be helpful in Alaska. They made a stop in Bullhead City, where Alex closed out his bank account and visited the trailer he'd stayed at with Charlie. He grabbed some books and his journal photo album from the canoe trip that he'd left behind. Back on the road, Ron made a special request to Alex. He explained that his mother and father had both been only children, and so was he. He explained that he'd lost his own son, and that when he died, that was the end of his family line. He asked Alex if he could adopt him, and if he would be his grandson, but Alex dodged the question saying that they would talk about it when he returned back from Alaska. He finally left him on the shoulder of Interstate 70, just outside of Grand Junction. In early April, he received a letter from Alex once again urging him to leave his life behind and start a nomadic lifestyle like his own. And shockingly, the old man followed his advice. He put his furniture and most of his other belongings into a storage locker. He bought a van, built bunks in it, and stocked it with camping supplies. He headed to Alex's old campsite, passed to the hot springs, and set up a camp of his own, waiting for his friend to return someday. 
Alex arrived back at Westerberg's grain elevator and told them he was planning on staying until April 15th. He explained that he would come back to work again for the fall harvest, but wanted to leave early enough to squeeze in as much time in Alaska as possible. For four weeks, he worked around the grain elevator, doing a variety of jobs no one else wanted to do, like killing vermin and weed removal. Westerberg said that, quote, I got the impression that this Alaska escapade was going to be his last big adventure and that he wanted to settle down some. He said he was going to write a book about his travels. He liked Carthage. With his education, nobody thought he was going to work at a goddamn grain elevator for the rest of his life, but he definitely intended to come back here for a while and help us out with the elevator and figure out what he was going to do next. By the time spring came around, Alex had focused in hard on his goal of an Alaskan adventure. He talked about the upcoming trip at every opportunity that he had. He'd sought out the experienced hunters around town and asked them questions about stalking game, dressing as kills, and how to cure meat. In mid-April, Wayne was extremely busy and short-staffed, so he asked if Alex could push his departure back um, by a week or two and keep working in the meantime. He even offered to buy him a ticket to Fairbanks, but Alex declined, claiming that flying would be cheating. On his final night in Carthage, Alex partied with Wayne and or partied with Wayne and his work crew at the cabaret club in town. He surprised everyone by sitting down at the piano and going through a library of tunes. He'd never told anyone that he could play the piano at all, so they were shocked at his talent when he began to play. On the morning of April 15th, everyone gathered at the grain elevator to wish him goodbye and success on his journey. He left his journal and photo album with Wayne for safekeeping and gifted him the leather belt that he had made. When he hugged fellow employee Gail Bora, she noticed he was crying, and she said that frightened me. He wasn't planning on being gone all that long. I figured he wouldn't have been crying unless he intended to take some big risks and knew he might not be coming back. That's when I started to have a bad feeling that we wouldn't ever see Alex again. One of Westerberg's other employees, a man named Rod Wolf, needed to haul a load of sunflower seeds to North Dakota and agreed to drive Alex to the interstate. He said, quote, when I let him off, he had that big damn machete hanging off his shoulder. I thought, geez, nobody's going to pick him up when they see that thing. But I didn't say nothing about it. I just shook his hand, wished him good luck, and told him he'd better write, Rolf said of the drop-off. Westerberg received a postcard from Montana that read, April 18th, arrived in Whitefish this morning on a freight train. I am making good time. Today I will jump the border and turn north for Alaska. Give my regards to everyone. Take care, Alex. In early May, he received another postcard from Alex. This one featured a polar bear on the front with the message, Greetings from Fairbanks. The back of the card read, This is the last you shall hear from me, Wayne. Arrived here two days ago. It was very difficult to catch rides in the Yukon Territory, but I finally got here. Please return all mail I received to the sender. It might be a very long time before I return south. If this adventure proves fatal and you don't ever hear from me again, I want you to know you're a great man. I will now walk into the wild. Alex. And that's where I'm going to leave you guys now for part one. Part two should be out within the week. If you want to support the podcast, leave me a positive review, tell a friend, or follow me on Instagram or Facebook at Olympia Oddities Podcast. And until next time, friends.